You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. All right, friends. Hey, season five is rapidly coming to a close, but uh, we are committed to continue to have just guests that we can learn a lot from. And today's guest, Dr. Wade Mullen, is exactly that. Uh, Wade is another returning guest on the show, which means, of course, uh, he will endure a deeper anxiety set of questions where angels fear to tread. But before we get to that, uh, Wade wrote a book called Something's Not Right. I'm holding it here in my hand. Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power. Wade's PhD is actually in Impression Management Tactics, specifically focused on Christian organizations when the organization has abuse in their past or when they discover that one of their key leaders or sometimes their key leader has been exposed with some form of abuse. Uh, Wade's expertise really comes in. His ability to look at the press release of an organization and then dissect it for all the different impression management tactics is incredible. Last time Wade was on the show, that's what we got into. I first met Wade through Twitter. I know uh, social media can be a real dumpster fire, but it can also help you connect with some amazing people. And I'd, I'd watch Wade's threads as he would dissect what was going on. I'm sorry to say that Wade is busy. He has a lot of work. As you might imagine, we are unfortunately in an era where the most common response to accusation of abuse is impression management rather than honesty. And so uh, Wade's been keeping pretty busy lately as he tries to help organizations do the right thing. So Wade, we're going to get into the book. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be back on the show with you. Excellent. Let's just get right in for maybe people who didn't catch your first episode. Uh, maybe you just define for us what impression management actually is. Let's just start there. Yeah, very simply, it's an attempt by an individual or sometimes a team of individuals, you know, like a board to manipulate, shape, create an image that an audience is forming of those who are presenting a definition of a situation or of an event. And so a good metaphor and image to keep in mind is that of a theater play. And Irving Goffman, who wrote a book in 1959 called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, used this image of a theater play to help us understand impression management. And he basically said, you know, that individuals are actors on a stage and they're presenting a version of their themselves to an audience. And there's a front stage or a front region of an individual's life, um, what's seen by the audience in front of the curtain. And then there's a backstage or a back region of our lives, which is behind the curtain. And the part of our lives that an audience doesn't have access to can't see. And so Impression management is uh, the tactics that an individual or a team of actors, let's say, might use in order to shape the impressions that the audience is forming of those who are engaging in the in this performance. Yeah, and what's interesting about that metaphor, you actually sketch it out early in the book, you show us the picture, is sometimes the members of the audience are the abuse victims or the people who just have that feeling like, man, something's wrong. So what's it like for the audience who, who knows something is off when they're seeing the actors uh, presenting these impression management tactics? It's very, it's very difficult uh, because you 
if you are aware of kind of what's going on behind the curtain, but you're watching a performance that you know is inconsistent with what's true, what do you do with that? If, if you speak up, then you might cause some disruption because the rest of the audience perhaps doesn't know what you know. And so if you say something, then all of a sudden you're redefining the situation for the audience. And so very likely you'll be condemned by those who are trying to manage the impressions of, of, of the audience. Uh, and so it's also this, this difficult experience in which you basically become a sharer of those secrets. And so if you know that the presentation is, is, is different than what's actually true, then in a sense, you are carrying that secret. And that's a very difficult thing to bear as well. You know, I was just recently in a meeting where I knew what was really going on behind the scenes, but what was being presented to the people in the meeting was something that was entirely different than what was true. And so even I was in a difficult position of trying to decide, what do I do here? Do I keep my mouth shut or do I say something? Yeah, that's an interesting point because you're actually not part of the play. You've been brought in. What what do you do in that situation? How do you know when to just share knowledge versus to wait? The practice that I've been following is to first try to go to those like performers, let's say the actors who are presenting this this definition, first go to them in private and say, here's what I heard, but here's what I know to be true. And here's what you know to be true. And I'd like to appeal to you to make that right. And I think... What you need to do then is to speak to those who have heard a false narrative and cor- correct that and give them that, that opportunity. So I think there ought to be some space for those who have presented a wrong narrative to be given the chance to correct that. But there have been times, even you know, about eight months ago or so, I was in another meeting where uh, a definition was presented to a group of people that I knew was wrong. But that that wrong definition was in that moment harming somebody. And I decided going into that meeting that if I hear something that I know is wrong because it in that moment is bringing harm to an individual, I'm going to say something. And so I did say something in that meeting. And that was difficult because it caused disruption um, and it became awkward so it, it it takes some wisdom, but I typically though I try to go first go to those who are who are presenting that information and see if they might be willing to make it right. Yeah, that's fascinating, Wade. You've got to be a nimble guy, like you mentioned wisdom, but also just that nimble discernment in the moment of when you're crossing a threshold and when to not. Yeah, and I don't always get it right because it is a it is a difficult position to to be in. You have to pray and think on on your feet and knowing that you're in a very volatile situation it, it is quite difficult and something that I'm still learning how, how how to do and it's you're in the middle of a storm and you know that you know the wind can change at any moment yeah and like okay what do I do do I do I do I stand in front of this you know person who right now who might be harmed by by this storm or or do I wait? Do I? So it's, it's just in those moments, I'm just flooded with all of those options at once. And, and so it does take some discernment and, and reliance on the Holy Spirit to lead. Yeah. 
you, you lead us through in the book just masterfully, just very gently fleshing out all the dynamics going on. So you, you spend a lot of time looking about, okay, if you're the victim or if you sense that something's wrong, you kind of dive into that and then you flip and show, okay, here's what the organization is doing. And one of the things that I, I found all the way through the book is you'll take a topic, but then you'll just camp in that topic and flesh out the aspects of the topic. So one of the first ones you do is secrets. I think we all understand secret keeping and the challenge of it, but you actually break it down to four different kinds of secrets. I wonder if you'd just describe the four secret types for us now. Yeah, so there's uh, there are what are called dark secrets, uh, which is the main secret that I'm interested in helping people understand. And so that's something that uh, somebody might uh, keep hidden uh, because it could disrupt uh, the image that other people are forming of them. Uh, if that secret was to be made known, then it would reveal that uh, they're they're not actually who they say they are, and so it, it might cause uh, people to question that person's integrity or whether they ought to continue to be in a position of authority. And so, ab like abuse that's kept hidden is a dark secret. But not all secrets are dark secrets. So there are strategic secrets as well. And so if you are, you know, planning a surprise birthday party for somebody, you know, you might you, you should keep that. Uh, plan a secret from the person you want to surprise. So there's nothing dark about that, nothing nefarious. It's still a secret, but it's a strategic secret. Strategic secrets can also be dark secrets as well. And so there is some, some, some overlap. And then there are inside secrets. So those are secrets that somebody might entrust to just a select few of people. And so one thing that I've seen within organizations is a board member or chair of a board might decide to only reveal certain information to certain members of that board. And so that person has created, often unbeknownst to the rest of the board, this in this in-group within the board where they're giving certain information to only certain select board members. And so they've created this inside secret. And typically that's done to sometimes to create this sense of a, a exclusivity, like, hey, you're, you're one of us, or to create this sense of loyalty, this, this specialness. Uh, but often, though, it's used to try to control information because the person who's trying to protect that secret and is treating it as, as an inside secret knows that the more people who become aware of this secret, the more likely it is that that secret might get out. And so a dark secret is often an inside secret. And so that's why a board might decide, a board member might decide, you know, I'm only going to share this with a couple of the board members who I trust, right? So there are dark se secrets, strategic secrets, inside secrets, and then there are entrusted secrets. So these are secrets that somebody might entrust to a therapist or to a pastor or to a friend. And they may be dark or they may not be, uh, but the idea is, this is something that I'm sharing with you because you're a trusted individual. It's not something that I would want, you know, the whole world to know or other people to know. And so those are entrusted secrets. And we tend to think of all secrets maybe as bad. And what I'm trying to point out is that not all secrets are bad. Sometimes it's right to, to keep a certain secret. Um, but there are many 
dark secrets, unfortunately, that shouldn't be kept a, a, a secret. And, and it's important to understand this distinction, too, especially within abuse scenarios, because sometimes what I've seen is somebody claim confidentiality uh, and say, we can't report this to the police because so-and-so has entrusted this secret to me as a pastor. And so they're conflating the need for an entrusted secret with the need to reveal a dark secret that is actually harming, has harmed others or might harm uh, uh, others in the future. Yeah, that's part of the challenge, isn't it? Like as as we look at the last few years of fairly well-known organizations that have some kind of abuse thrown at them as an accusation, it's almost like they don't believe, I don't know how to ask this way, but the, the abuser has compartmentalized the victims so that many times they don't know each other exists. And so if one of them comes forward, the board says, well, it was a one-time case, but they then don't have any avenue to look at a pattern or how widespread it is. That seems to be an almost boringly predictable situation where someone comes forward with abuse, the organization says, no, it's not really true or it's overstated. But there's never an actual uncovering of the dark secret to see there's 20 people or there's you know seven people that have had the same experience. You must run into that a lot. Yeah, and it's sad because often the person who's bringing that information to the leaders is is doing it because they they know that there are others or they believe that there might be. And so they feel compelled to make their own story aware to those who have the ability to look into that and see if there is a pattern. And but often though that person sadly is is not listened to, uh sometimes um not believed if they are listened to. And so you then feel as if you're not seen, right? Um uh, that you're not being taken seriously, that your your story isn't being heard and looked into and 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 so, you know, an organization might justify that by saying, well, surely, you know, this can't be true. You know, look at all the good that this person has done. Uh, there surely can't be a pattern. Uh, and so for various reasons, they might choose not to hear that story, look into it, explore it further, see if there are others, see if there is, it, it, it is a pattern. So sadly, yeah, that does happen too often. Yeah, as I was reading the book, what kept racing through my mind is cognitive dissonance. Obviously, this is my field. Is It's one of the top sources of anxiety is when there's a massive dissonance between, like there's an objective set of facts, but the way you see those facts and the way someone else see those facts is radically different. And it puts you into an anxious state and you're trying to basically worry your way around to the other side of seeing things. Um, you share very openly that that the reason this is your field is your own personal experience. You went through a challenging situation. I, I've had the same situation. It was almost 20 years ago now. And I remember going home to my wife, even with the training I'd had in systems theory and anxiety. And my wife would say to me, like, you act like an abuse victim. Like, like what I would feel, because I did a lot of work in domestic violence when I was in this role and I would say, I feel like I'm on the other side of the table. I feel like I'm the person in domestic violence because I can't make sense of what's going on. And so so could we maybe just look at cognitive dissonance through the lens of the victim? Uh, it, you know, what's going on with them that 
they think they know something, but everything around them is saying it's different. And then I'd love to talk about the cognitive dissonance on the leadership board. Because you've kind of talked about both. I know this has now become the world's most complex question, which is unfortunately one of my wonderful traits. But uh, you just hinted at the board says there's so much good going on, like this can't be true or the good outweighs the bad. So maybe we could start with cognitive dissonance with the victim. The person finally has the courage to come forward. They name something. Even that act is tremendously courageous. What happens then when the leadership doesn't name it to the weight that the victim feels? Well, it does create this disequilibration, this dissonance. You know, you're you're left wondering, um, maybe I am making this all up. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I I'm am wrong. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm crazy uh, because I'm sharing this information and people aren't believing me or they're saying, you know, this can't be true or they're saying, you know, what do you really want? Like, are, are you just wanting revenge? Do you want to see this other person suffer? Uh, are you uh, blowing this out of proportion? You're making too much of a big deal of this. And those messages are very powerful because you're already in a very vulnerable place. Uh, you're already sharing uh, deep pain with others, not knowing what they're going to do with that story. And so it's a very difficult already to be in that place. And then to have other people begin to basically gaslight you and say, your version of reality, it's, it's not what is actually true. And and we don't believe you. And, and so it does create this, this dissonance and, and you feel very lost for, for a time being. And, and I think that's where then going back and doing this inventory work is, is often so helpful, uh, going back and asking the question, well, what is true? Okay. I'm going to, uh, make a list of all the things that have happened that I know are wrong. Uh, and you begin to do that inventory work, or even you might do that with, with somebody else. Go to a therapist or a trusted friend and say, here's, you know, here's my story. So, someone who's objective, you know, who, who isn't threatened by your story. You say, here's what happened. Here's my story. Here's what's, ne- here's what's now happening. Uh, here's how people are responding to this. You know, am I am I the crazy one here? Am I totally off? And it's often that other person who helps you do that inventory work, who's objective, who says, no, you have every right to be concerned. You have every right to be upset. You have every right to be shining a light on this. And so that can really help with that dissonance and bringing you to a point of of defining the situation uh, for how in in the way that it ought to be defined as opposed to allowing those who are engaging in impression management because they're threatened by your story to define that for you. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. So then if we flip it to the, let's say it's a board and uh, let's say it's a, for the sake of the discussion, it's a church. So then the lead pastor has an accusation brought against him and he's been long serving there a long time, a lot of reputation, a lot of so-called fruit from his ministry. Even later in your book, you talk about that situation. I'm not sure if it was a church or an organization, but the board's defense strategy, uh, you said, let's flush the system with good reports. That was their reaction to learning the news of the potential abuse one of their solutions was let's just keep sending our organization lots of updates about all the good that God's doing in this organization. 
in that moment, what confuses me is, is the board intentionally being deceitful? Are they knowingly deceiving? Or are they so infected by the system that they're in cognitive dissonance? That what they're doing is wrong, but they don't even know that what they're doing is wrong. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure. I mean, th- those questions of of you know how aware are individuals uh, of their own capacity to manage impressions, and especially in the moment when they're engaging in that, uh, it, it, it's an ongoing process of discovery for me. Uh, in that particular case, and I you know won't name the organization. Uh, they, I believe, knew exactly what they were doing. And they were deliberately choosing to get their people to stop paying attention to the abuse and to pay more attention to perceived positive things that the organization, you know, was still engaging in. And so they wanted to, quote unquote, flush the system by flooding their people with good reports. And, and this was a church. And so, you know, they said, let's, let's keep telling people, you know, that, hey, we're doing good work over here. You know, people are still being baptized and let's get these numbers out to them. Let's, and, and when I uh, came across that information, I pointed that out, you know, that my concern here isn't that, you know, it's great that good things continue to happen. My concern is that you're using those good reports in order to distract people's attention away from real pain and suffering. And, and that's not, you know, how the body of Christ ought, ought to respond. I wonder, Wade, if one of the reasons we all end up in cognitive dissonance is because oftentimes an abuser has some form of narcissism in them. And they're, they're maestros at, for years, managing your impression of them. And so, for example, the way they lead to some people is very different than the way they lead to other people. So when you hear about the abuse, you say, well, that wasn't my experience with them. And it sounds, that must be a whole other person. Yeah, you you must run into that a lot, I'd imagine. Yeah, often. Uh, and, and, And it's very difficult to know how to respond to that because... I've on numerous occasions come, been in a room where uh, an, an abusive leader is being, um, where an abusive leader is is resigning or separating from the organization for whatever reason. Uh, there's a change, and people aren't being told why. And you'll have some people who say, you know, this is the greatest boss. This is the greatest pastor that I've ever had, right? And then you have other people who know what's really going on and have suffered tremendous harm and in some cases trauma at the hands of that individual. So how does that happen? How, 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 do you, how can you be in one room where some people are saying, this is, this is the greatest leader that I've ever served with or under, and then you have other people in that room as well who have an entirely different experience. And it's because that leader is wearing different disguises, essentially, uh, for different people. And so depending on the situation, depending on who he or she is with, uh, that will determine uh, what disguise, basically, that they wear. And so it's just almost always the case that 
abuse is happening in secret and that there's only one or in some cases multiple people who who know you know what this individual is capable of behind closed doors well then everybody else though is is often being given a very different narrative and that narrative is so often the exact opposite and on purpose right so got one of the one of the things that goffman says which i think is really profound is he says and i'm not going to get get the quote right but i'll paraphrase it is he says that the more there is about a person that is the more the more there is about a person that is different than what is being presented to the audience the more that individual feels the need to volunteer positive information about himself or herself to 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 the audience so the wider the 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 gap is the split between who that person is in front of people and who that person really is the more they feel the need to volunteer information about themselves to the audience in order as a way to kind of create this buffer between what the audience sees and what's really going on behind the curtain so that's happening and then there's a reason for that where some people experience what they would describe as just a tremendous person who's been so kind to them and then other people are experiencing experiencing something that is completely the opposite of that yeah and you also write about the impression management of when you know you've been caught as a leader you get ahead of it and you kind of confess it and wrap it up in a bow in the meeting before people even have a chance to bring the accusation to you as a way of minimizing the damage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's very tricky. Um, and it's hard to know how to respond to that where somebody knows that they're caught or, and basically what they're trying to do is to hold off any kind of investigation or they're trying to basically get people who are bringing concerns to drop those concerns. So they're trying to disarm those that they view as a threat. And one of the ways that they might try to disarm you is by offering this apology. But it's not specific. It's very vague. It still keeps people away from an understanding of what really happened is happening, the harm that's been caused. And so they might just say, you know, yeah, I've made mistakes and I'm sorry. Can we all just move on? I own it. You know, I've, I own these things. You know, let's, let's move on. But then if you ask, okay, well, what specifically do you acknowledge? Uh, what specifically do you own? You might not get a response. Yeah, what's the impact of what you did on us? And then yeah. maybe they say, well, you know, that's God's forgiven all that. Like, let's move on. That kind of, like, right. that's, the, that's the damage in Christian circles, right? As we, we wield God and forgiveness and second chances and grace as a covering for any despicable behavior. Yeah, and, and and then you get into you know what I would describe as spiritual abuse. Then in that case, or emotional abuse, where the person who is is trying to bring light to the situation is now in a way being indirectly told that you're you know not showing grace. Uh, why can't you forgive? Uh, what do you really want? Like, do you do you just want this person to be condemned and for this person to be shamed and and so the victim then, or the truth teller, is again in those moments often harmed by those kinds of uh, approaches. We had a pastor in our town, very successful preacher, magnetic personality. I mean, you've you've met so many of these people. And uh, at a church, got caught having affairs, got let go. 
went through a restoration period with trusted people, went to another church, more secret affairs and alcohol, uh, like heavy alcohol addiction, to the point where some women had gone to court to get a restraining order against him because of his abusive texts and threats mm. about coming out. And what was interesting, what was phenomenal to me was him leaving that, starting another church, and then just kind of um, celebrating it. Like, no one's more screwed up than the pastor, so you're welcome too. That would have been like, if I'd have to summarize the message of that church is like, I'm a broken person who needs the grace of God, so come join me if you're broken. But there's no recognition that a leader's life should have integrity or that there should be congruence between your stage persona and your private. I was really shocked at the shamelessness of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that is a pattern that I see in, in, in Christianity, unfortunately, where a, a pastor, a church leader ends up leaving uh, because you know they've been exposed in some way but the details aren't revealed and they don't always need to be revealed. But sometimes those details or even a single detail changes everything. Right. So sometimes, for example, they might, if, if there's, if, you know, if there's a victim involved and there's, let's say sexual abuse, sexual misconduct, then one of the things that I've seen is that the church or the pastor might obscure the age of that, of that victim and give people the impression that the the other party was a consenting adult. Yeah. When sometimes, in fact, you know, the other party was uh, a seventeen-year-old uh, in the youth group, that kind of thing. And so that's a detail that changes everything, right? So often, then, you know, those kind of details are obscured, and people then are given a narrative that they accept and. It allows that individual, sadly, then to go on and, let's say, start another church. And I've seen this pattern, too, where that individual who hasn't been exposed as somebody who has, like, morally fallen, quote-unquote, uh, or has made mistakes, right? So they go through a, often a rushed two-year restoration process, and then they're back in a church, and people celebrate that as an act of you know, God's grace and forgiveness. Yeah. And they're being presented then a narrative. Okay, I, you know, I've hit rock bottom. You know, I've I've made mistakes. You know, I'm not perfect. And what sadly, what they do then is they still keep people, you know, away from knowing, you know, those those details. But then they are, in my mind, exploiting people by engaging in a certain type of impression management that I talk about in the book called alliances, which is a type of charm where the charming person is trying to basically seduce people by, by creating this alliance with people on the basis of a shared experience in this case. So they're saying, hey, I've had these experiences of being at rock bottom, of failing, of needing a second chance. And I, you know, I know there's many of you who have had similar experiences. So let's form a community based on those experiences and I'll, and, and I'll be your leader, but it's very deceptive and, and exploitive. Yeah. You have a whole chapter on charms, how an abuser uses flattery and favors and alliances. It was pretty chilling to read. Part of what was chilling for me is I think I have a personality and a wiring that could look like this, or that I believe I could fall into this. I'm a type A upfront kind of leader. And therefore, and I recognize in my church, I'm a, I'm a lead pastor, 
the amount of power I have at my church is pretty chilling because I open the Bible on a regular basis for people, try to help them make meaning out of scripture and their relationship with God. So I'm assigned a lot of power from people and hierarchically I have a lot of power as a lead pastor. And so reading through that, the charms chapter was a great gut check for me because I think I've used, I don't know how manipulatively, but flattery, like I've used flattery to recruit volunteers, for example. And mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's probably not in the level of abuse, but th- it's entirely possible. They would say, well, I felt, I felt kind of coerced, you know, to sign up and serve in this way. Or a lot of what you wrote about is a great gut check for any public leader. And I think especially, Wade, if you're the primary explainer and interpreter of scripture for your organization... I think you're given so much spiritual authority. It's it's pretty concerning. H- how much do you think the modern church system is creating these situations versus how much is it just providing an avenue for existing abusers? Mm-hmm. That's always been a question that haunts me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it haunts me as well. Uh, I think it's an important question because then as people who are a part of shaping uh, the nature and purpose of the church and within our communities, you know, we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, who, who are we being? What structures are we creating? Uh, what values are we establishing that that might contribute to this? And, and so I think those are important questions to ask. One of the things that I think people do need to consider is, is how we tend to centralize so much power within a single individual or within a single role. You know, like senior pastor, lead pastor, or a prophet, or a priest, or even the preacher, right? And and I'm not necessarily saying that we ought to do away with all of those, but there does need to be, I think, a careful consideration of the power that is inherent within those roles and positions, so that when, for example, you find your yourself in a place where you want to try to uh, influence people to engage in a certain project or initiative or recruit them to a certain role, that you understand the power of your words simply because of the position that you're in and how other people yeah. are seeing you. And and I would love for pastors and church leaders just to have more of a conversation about, okay, what, how do we steward this power well? And including, you know, how we use our, our words and how we even encourage people. Like, so for example, a pastor might tell a young person, you know, I believe, you know, God is calling you to this, or I sense God's anointing on your life. So these are common phrases that you might hear within a church, you know, between a, a pastor or a church leader and somebody else. Well, those are very, very powerful words. And yeah. And, and you, I think why do we need to really weigh those kinds of words carefully. So, so I'd like to see that. And then also I'd like to see us having uh, just discussions about the, the nature of power itself. And, and people like Diane Langberg are, are helping us uh, to think through s- some of those issues. And her recent book, uh, Redeeming Power, I think it's called, uh, Redeeming Authority, it's just really good and, and really important. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a really essential conversation I've noticed because I've been in ministry 25 years. I've been a lead pastor 15. And I've definitely noticed in my own soul 
the impact of getting up on a regular basis on that stage, opening the Bible, the impact on me, like never mind the impact on the congregation, but the way it's shifting me, mm. the idea that one of us captures all of our attention for 30 minutes a week in the type of church I'm in, like other churches, it's not that way. The liturgy is more central, which I understand the why that's a healthy thing. Um, yeah, it's it's a great it's a great gut check, I think, Wade, because I do suspect we have created a system that both welcomes, hides, but also creates abuse and narcissism. Yeah, because I think, you know, if you put so much power within a position, then I do think it's going to attract those who are looking for that kind of power. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's why if you're going to have those kind of positions, you know, vetting is, is, is really, really important, obviously. But there's still that uh, that variable, though, at work, though. Hey, sh- should we be creating these these magnets that might be drawing people who are looking for an opportunity to have power over others. So I think that's something that, that we ought to be thinking about. And, and many people are, and I use the uh, image in the book of a, a, of a arch, you know, and there's a keystone at the top of the arch and many of our churches are structured in, the, in such a way where the entire system is held together by a single keystone, a single person. And so if you remove that person, then there's a fear that the entire structure will collapse. And so I think that's another thing that's at play that can contribute not only to abuse, but the cover-up of abuse, where somebody might become aware of an accusation against that keystone leader, and they might uh, feel the need to cover that up, not only to protect that leader, but also to protect the entire institution, because they might fear, okay, well, if this person is exposed, then what will that mean for this entire institution? It could shut the entire place down. Yeah. Early on in the book, you really pointedly show that a large reason that organizations circle the wagons is because of the fear of removing the keystone leader. All of the ministry that or that's been built on this one person, what happens if we... Yeah. And what's fascinating, Wade, is even some ministries today that are named after one person. Yes. Right. The name of the organization is that person. And then accusations against that person now threatens the entire organization. It takes a brave board to face the truth, I guess. I, yeah. I wanted, to, wanted to pivot. Um, here's where I'm stumped that I'd love to see your thoughts on the amount of keystone leaders that have fallen, so you know, like you call it a so-called moral failure, you know, we can be power mongers and greedy and we can keep our jobs. In fact, what I've often told my church is my sins are usually hidden, not public. And they use the shadow side of my gifts and my sins is what gets me elevated to lead pastor. You know, that's, it's really a deadly thing to be careful of. Okay, so a keystone leader falls, has a so-called moral failure. They go through a short-changed uh, restoration process. They pop up, like you were saying before, with this new church where now, you know, alliances, you know what it's like to be me. Um, have you had any success in convincing those people that the worst thing for their soul is to get back up in front of a pulpit and the best thing for their soul is to serve God in obscurity outside the spotlight? Do you have, you, I'm not looking for names, but have you ever successfully helped someone see that 
it's not good for them to get back up and be leading again. I, I haven't personally, um, unfortunately, because in most of the cases that I've been involved in, that person is leaving without actually acknowledging uh, the harm that was done and, and their responsibility for that. And so, you know, there's not even an opportunity to have a discussion about what would be good for that individual's soul moving forward um, because they're not willing to to speak the truth about how they got to where, where they're at. One of the things that I, I do, you know, if I have opportunity to say, I try to, I, I try to help people see is that I think in general, it's not good for leaders to assume or presume that they're ever going to be in a position of, of authority over others within the context of a local church or some kind of ministry like that. And I think that's especially true if somebody has uh, betrayed their trust and they've misused their authority. And if they are removed or they resign, uh, if they're separated from that position, then I think they should move forward in their life without any kind of assumption or even thought about uh, entering into that kind of position again. And so because, you know, what that does then is I think it, it interferes with the, the, the restoration process. It, it becomes maybe a carrot that's being dangled over yeah. that. It, and, and, I, and I don't think that in, in and of itself is, is healthy. So the goal of the restoration then becomes not the restoration of that individual's health, and the restoration of that individual's um, spirituality, but a restoration to a position. Yeah. It's a uh, way it's, it's kind of a bummer of an interview. I mean, <laughs> it is, uh, yeah. Um, I just have, I, I had the same feeling I have now the last time we chatted, just what, what an essential person you are. Um, and I, and I know you're not alone. You mentioned Diane Landberg, you know, mm -hmm. Boz Chavidjian. There, there are Chuck DeGroote. Yes. There are a, a growing number of people we can all turn to for help. Um, in fact, I was thinking of Chuck a lot as I was reading your book, almost as if you, when you buy a book on Amazon, it tries to get you to buy another one. You know, you might also like, and I was thinking, man, it should just be required that Wade's book, Diane Langwood's book, Chuck's book on narcissism should be a trilogy for every church leader and every church board. Because what I, as just somebody who watches these statements come out, I'm not in the middle of any of the things that you're actually in the thick of. I just long for the organization that does it properly, properly, you know, that actually names it. And so I just want to close before we get to the gauntlet of, um, you do a beautiful job toward the end of the book of helping us tell the difference between an apology and a simple concession. And that's what I get so frustrated at is how often the board issues a press release that was written by some kind of obfuscating lawyer. And it's obvious that they're not actually, they're looking to say nothing or to obfuscate. But then the apology doesn't feel like an apology. They said the words, but you don't get the feeling. So you give us, uh, I think it's on page 143, the scorecard. Here's how you can actually score an apology. I wonder if we could just close with you sharing what that scorecard is. It's an attempt on 
my part to help people think through not so much even what an apology uh, would look like for them and their organization and what it would look like for them to offer an apology that will help the organization move forward. Because again, that's centering the organization. But here is an apology that those who have been harmed really need to hear. And, And so I think if an organization can get outside of themselves, especially when they're working on that kind of an apology, confession, uh, a statement like that, then, then that will really help them move, move toward this. And so the score, um, card, uh, is, is an acronym, uh, the S stands for surrender. And I think this is the most difficult step, whether we're apologizing as individuals or whether an organization is apologizing, it's to surrender your need to manage the impressions others are forming of you when you're apologizing. And so, you know, often when I am at a point where I need to apologize to somebody, my first thought is, okay, how can I soften this? Uh, how can I, how can I add something to this that will defend myself? And, and you have to surrender all of that. And then, you know, having surrendered your desire to manage impressions, then I think the next step is to confess, uh, to, to name specifically all of the wrongs that you know you've committed. And, and I think it's really important to be as specific as, as possible, which is difficult, very, very, very difficult to do that, because that might mean that you have a lot to apologize for, and it might take some time. And sometimes it's good to perhaps even do that in, in, in a letter. So it's to confess what you know to be wrong. And, and I'll just add something quick here is sometimes we don't know all that we've done that is wrong. And so maybe a step even before confession is to submit yourself to an outside person, kind of like you would submit yourself to a doctor if you're sick and meet with maybe a therapist or an objective person and say, you know, I'm going through this process. Uh, I need to make amends. I need to do what's right. Um, Here's, here's my story. Uh, Here's what's happened. Can you help me identify anything else that I need to confess. And, and I would say you, do, you would do the same thing, you know, if you're a Christian in your walk with God and say, God, search my heart. So there's that need to confess. And then after confession comes ownership. So it's not just saying, yes, I did this, but it's taking ownership of that. It's saying, yes, I did this. And I take complete responsibility for it. As opposed to saying, yes, I did this, but I was very tired at the time. Yeah, you or, don't know everything that I'm carrying. Yes, exactly. So taking full, full ownership, I think, is really important. And then the R stands for recognize. And so having having surrendered the need to manage your impressions, others are forming of you, having confessed, having taken ownership, then I think you need to recognize the harm that's been caused to the other person or to the other people and to name that and say, I understand uh, that this has resulted in this kind of harm and specifically name that. And sometimes, again, that's something that you may not know fully. And so there might be, uh, there needs to be an openness to hear about the extent of that of that harm so that you can then recognize that. And then the last step is to uh, express empathy uh, that I think if you are, if you are genuinely seeking to apologize, then that empathy 
will flow naturally out of you as a result of taking these steps. So having surrendered, having confessed, having taken full ownership, and then especially having taken the time to recognize all of the harm that you've caused. If you're going through those steps in a very genuine way, genuine way, then I really believe that the Spirit of God is working in your heart, bringing you to a point of conviction, and that empathy for the other person will flow out of you. And then, and only then, can I, I think, can you really, in sincerity, say, I am so, so sorry for this. So we often reverse that, where we start with, I'm sorry, now let's not talk about this anymore. And what I'm advocating for is a process that's very, uh, that turns that upside down. So let's walk slowly through this. And then at the end, I believe if you do that, you will be at a point where you will, as a byproduct, say to those that have been harmed, I, I am just overwhelmed with sorrow. Yeah. Henry Cloud wrote a book a few years ago called Necessary Endings. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was a chapter in it that was really helpful for me that really just came down to you can tell somebody is healthy if they're concerned about the impact of their behavior on other people. Yeah. And it came down to as simple as will they take responsibility for the weight of what they've caused? And that's, that's been helpful for me as, as I've worked with some people who use all the words, but it just I still am left in cognitive dissonance. It's like that. I don't think they're aware or they want to be aware of the impact of what they did and the price others have paid for their the crime, so to speak. It seems like that's kind of the measure. When you gave us the scorecard in the book, if I recall, Wade, I may be wrong. I think you were writing it from the point of view of the victim as a way for the victim to help measure the appropriateness of the apology so that because so often victims come away feeling empty after these meetings. They're like, it didn't, it didn't match. Like the apology didn't match the weight of the destruction. Right, so right. I thought it was really helpful. Um, I, I'm just going to say to our audience before we jump into the, the gauntlet, uh, I, I think uh, whether you've ever had any encounter with abuse in an organization or not, I think Wade's book is essential because it, it also helps all of us who are really wanting to be healthy leaders to measure our own tendencies. It's also why I love Chuck DeGroote's book on narcissism, where Chuck makes sure we understand we all have something in us that can get us into trouble. Uh, Wade, I feel like your book was the same. It, it both helps name what we're feeling, but it's also a good, I think, um, measure of our own organizational health. Um, so thank you. I'm, I know it cost you to write. So thank you for the work you've done on that. Thanks, Steve. And so, of course, I just used a little bit of flattery to butter you up for oh, no. <laughs> the uh, the wonder that is the gauntlet. I think we're just going to ask uh, four questions uh, this time. So, so let me just jump right into it, Wade. Um, in family systems theory, we teach that you you always carry your family of origin into every encounter, whether you want to or not. What would be one trait that you've inherited from your family that's really helped you in your work, and what's one trait that gets in the way? 
I've come from a family of farmers and preachers, and they really value on both sides. You know, my dad's side and my mom's side, they really value hard work. And, and so I would say that, you know, there are ditches on both sides of the road uh, with that ethic. And so I, I do value uh, the, the need to work hard and to, you know, give everything your best. Uh, but then, you know, on the other side of that, though, is perfectionism. Uh, and really what's behind that is a fear of failing. And so yeah. I've had to work through that and say, okay, even in my twenties, especially, uh, realizing that I'm really driven, uh, and I know where this comes from, my family of origin, and I want to succeed and I want to excel. Uh, but I, you know, I went through counseling, you know, myself, which was really helpful. And one of the things that the counselor, you know, asked me is, you know, where does this drive come from? And my response was, I don't know. <laughs> and he yeah. said, no, you do know. And so we just unpack that and realize, okay, there is a drive here and that can be used for good. But there's also underneath that uh, pressure to perform and succeed and to avoid uh, avoid failure. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, I, I've also noticed that a lot of leaders manage a gap between what they believe about God or even what they proclaim to others about God and what they experience themselves from God. Does that bring to mind anything for you, a gap that you wrestle with? I see so much that is wrong in the work that I do. And and I see so much evil. And that does cause for me uh, this cognitive dissonance. Like, you know, I, I believe God's at work here. I believe, you know, God can redeem this, but different scenarios and in different stories, I, I, I struggle with that at time, uh, times. I especially struggle when I see people who are innocent people who are severely harmed and wonder, oh God, you know, why is this happening? And, and, and well, you know, why, why haven't you stepped in to prevent this from happening? Uh, and, and so I continue to struggle with those kinds of, of, of questions. Um, but I lead an MDiv program, you know, and I, and I present, uh, to students, you know, belief in a God who's sovereign and who's at work in all things. And I do believe that, but then that belief is constantly challenged for me when I'm coming face to face with just real evil. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I, Believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would think because you are often in these rooms of tremendous tension where evils happen, your soul care has to be so intentional. I wonder if you could just share one or two either places or activities that really help your soul be well. Yeah. Uh, one is to, is to take a lot of breaks um, and to pause and to be intentional about that and recognizing that, you know, even though so many of these cases are, are a crisis in nature, it doesn't mean that I, I have to go nonstop. And so taking that time to pause and then in that space, for me personally, what's been most helpful is to worship. Um, It's to spend time 
alone with God, uh, sometimes with, with my wife, especially if we're going through something together and to put on some worship music or to read a Psalm and to, and to praise God in, in those moments. And, and I would say that over the years, I've learned how important that practice is, is, is for me, uh, to spend time in worship while going through something that is really, really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So this last question you may then have already answered, but let's see if it evokes something else. When in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved or seen? I'll answer that uh, through the lens of, of my work. Um, and, and even, you know, I had a recent experience that testifies to this. I think I've felt most fully loved and seen when I've been at my wits end uh, when I've, when I have felt completely outnumbered and, um, up against an impossible, um, situation and somebody else has seen that and has decided to join me, uh, in the fight to, uh, be in my corner with me. And so that's happened on a couple of occasions and it just recently happened. And I, I felt very alone in a, in a recent crisis and decided to, you know, stick my neck out and try to help somebody. And, but I quickly became a threat and quickly realized, well, you know, I'm really outnumbered here. I fear retaliation. I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen to me. And there were a couple of individuals who became aware of this and in a very strong and clear way came to my side and that moved me to tears uh, when that happened. And I realized that the reason why I felt so moved was because in that moment I was feeling as if I was no longer alone and feeling as if here are some people who are choosing to love me in this moment. And so I think it's this, yeah, this, this love of a friend to lay down his or her yeah. life for you. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, um, yeah, I, I'm left with the same impression as the first time we talked. It's just just so grateful, I guess, for your courage. Like I I know this work t- took a lot of courage, just the PhD that you did, and but then it's also your ongoing work. So thank you very much for coming on and sharing with us. For my listeners, I, I really hope you take seriously that things have to be different. We cannot... I think the most frustrating thing for me is is the next organization where a scandal erupts and they do the same damn thing. Like as if the last 20 press releases from the last 20 organizations didn't teach them anything. So we have to be different. We have to move forward learning lessons from others. And Wade, I, I, I am grateful you're not alone. I'm grateful there's a group of people who do this work. Um, but I'm sure grateful that you're doing it. So thank you for coming on the show. Well, Steve, I so appreciate your work and, and thank you for being a voice in this fight as well. And thank you for your concern. Um, I do have hope uh, that things are getting better and, and God is at work and I appreciate uh, you know your, your role in this. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 